be recording. There we go. Good catch. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Brandon, the host of the Resimply podcast. I want to thank you all for tuning in today. We have special guest Greg Dickerson. Greg, how are you doing today? Doing great, Brandon. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Um, the unexpected cold weather in April just can't, you know, it makes for fun. So, uh, Greg, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you located? Yeah, I'm in uh, Charlottesville, Virginia. My territory has been uh, most of my career from the Outer Banks of North Carolina up into the D.C. area. Uh, military brat, military family. So I've lived all over. I've lived out on the West Coast in uh, San Francisco, San Diego, and Long Beach. I was stationed at Long Beach when I went in the Navy right out of high school. Uh, and then I uh, lived in Virginia Beach. That's where I'm from. All my family's from there. Moved to the Outer Banks of North Carolina in 1997. Um, that's where I started my little remodeling handyman company uh, that I built into a $30 million building business in seven years. Started 12 other companies along the way. Did hundreds of millions of dollars in real estate deals. Uh, you know, along the along the way, started with one lot, one little lot flip. That was my first deal. And, uh, you know, learned from people that were coming down there doing, uh, you know, buying houses, renovating them and renting them out, you know, doing the old short term rental uh, strategy back in, you know, this was in 1997, 98 before VRBO, Airbnb and bigger pockets wasn't even around. None of that stuff. So, you know, I'm old school, go all the way back to those days. I was flipping houses in the Virginia Beach area and uh, doing development deals on the Outer Banks, and then, you know, started doing more commercial multifamily after that. Uh, Sold that first company in 2004, 2005, reinvested all the profits into bigger real estate deals, and, you know, just grew and scaled everything from there. So I've done, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in real estate deals, all types, you know, development ground up, as well as, you know, land development subdivisions, um, a lot of value add, flipped hundreds of houses, remodeled, you know, I don't know, probably over a thousand houses and commercial buildings in the career, and, you know, built a lot of high-end custom homes. Mostly, most of those were short-term rentals, you know, million-dollar beach houses, uh, those types of things. And then, uh, you know, now I coach and mentor people all over the country and around the world doing all kinds of cool things. Uh, I'm a co-founder at a tech startup, and I invest in markets and crypto and, you know, kind of a little, little different stage in my life from where I was back then when we were doing, you know, 30, 40 uh, multimillion-dollar projects a year. But now, you know, uh, I do fewer, bigger deals and and help other people, you know, learn and do what I've done. That's awesome. That's uh, it's really cool to see, hear that you progress from a, I would say a handyman uh, kind of home remodeling business in the beginning to kind of what you've gotten to now. Yeah. I'm your classic serial entrepreneur. And the, and the neat thing is, like I said, I, you know, I didn't go to college. I went in the Navy right out of high school. I started with absolutely nothing. I had no money, no backers, no credit. Uh, it was just me, my truck, and my tools, and I got started with that. And what I did was, you know, I was very fortunate. I'm self-educated, even though I didn't go to college. I've always poured into myself personally, professionally. I've spent hundreds of thousands on my education, and I've probably, you know, spent millions in opportunity cost on learning what I know now, making mistakes along the way. But the big thing that I did was, you know, I read, I read Rich Dad Poor Dad. And what I got out of that book was not what most people get. Most people want to be Robert and Kim. They want to do the real estate thing. What I got out of Rich Dad, Poor Dad was I wanted to be Rich Dad. I wanted to be the guy that everybody was coming to with all the deals that was like, you know, coaching and mentoring everybody in all the different businesses and then taking all that cash flow and reinvesting in other assets. So that's what I did. I, you know, I set out and I became Rich Dad and I started, you know, a bunch of different companies and built them up, sold them off, reinvested all the profits, you know, in other assets. I had one or two main businesses uh, that generated all the cash flow that, uh, you know, I was able to fund all my deals with. So you know, that, that's how I did that. And then, you know, the way I got into development was, you know, there were other successful investors and developers that were coming down to my area 
you know, buying beach houses and buying land. And, uh, you know, I was doing work for them. And uh, I started learning from them what they were doing, why they were doing it, how they were doing it from a finance standpoint, as well as just the, you know, strategic logistics of what we were doing. And uh, started doing projects with and for, you know, other developers and investors from other areas. And the really cool thing where the light bulb really went off for me, the first deal I ever did, like I said, was a little lot flip. It was a friend of mine that, you know, called me up. Uh, he knew that I was successful. He said, hey, there's this lot over here that we can buy. I think it was $100,000. He said, you put up all the money. My dad has a client that'll buy it from us. We can make a profit and we'll split that and I'll do all the work. All you have to do is put up the money. And I said, well, how much can we make? He said, I don't know, maybe 15,000 a piece. And I said, how long? He said, like 30 days. I was like, really? You can do that? He's like, yeah. I said, okay, let's do it. So I gave him the money. He took care of everything else. 30 days later, he handed me $115,000 back. And I thought that was just like the greatest thing in the world. Yeah. And, um, yeah, but what triggered in my mind there was land position. So I understood from that point how valuable the land was becoming in the area that we were in because yeah. there was limited inventory. There wasn't a lot of resales on the market, kind of like right now. So inventory levels are, you know, constrained all across the country in most markets, you know, and that's when building and development becomes a better vehicle than trying to buy something. So what I did was I went and I started tying up all the land I could, buying all the land I could, developing it. And I would flip the lots to my investors. Then I would build them a house. And then I was building spec houses too at the same time. And it was just, you know, it was a really, really good time to be in the business. So, you know, that's kind of my journey. Gotcha. So you started flipping a lot and then you were buying the lot, selling it to the investor, and then they were hiring you to build their house on top of that land. Yeah. Yeah. And usually I was flipping the land for at least 50, sometimes, you know, hundred percent what I paid for it. So yeah. those lots were a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollars. So I'd flip them for 150 to 200,000 other than my oceanfront lots. So I'd buy, you know, oceanfront hotels and tear them down. And then yeah. I would flip those lots to the investors and then build them houses. Sometimes I'd keep one or two for myself. Those were a little better deals. You know, that's where, you know, you, you could, I don't know, I was buying those for six or 700,000 and selling them for like 9 million or 900,000. So yeah. yeah, it would be, you know, six to eight lots. It'd be four to 9 million for those projects. So those were a lot of fun. Yeah. And when you're talking the ocean, I also live on the coast is landlocked. There's, there's only so many lots. So once, you know, once they become fewer and fewer, the price continues to drive up and up. Yeah. Where are you located? Uh, Charleston. Oh yeah. Charleston, South Carolina. Yeah. So yes, yeah. I mean, you know, when it comes to oceanfront, bayfront, waterfront property that just, you know, you're just not making any more. I mean, there's been right. some land reclamation projects done here and there. There was a big one done on the Outer Banks where this March Island was turned into a community. But, um, you know, that stuff's extremely difficult to impossible almost to get done anymore. So, that's you know, that's kind of the key when you're talking about, you know, uniqueness of properties, when you're talking about views in the mountains, you know, waterfront, whether it's lakes, rivers, streams, ocean, bays, whatever, but the key to that market was the closer you were to the ocean, the more rental income the property would generate and the higher the value. So it was almost like you had oceanfront, then you had the row right across the street semi, then you'd have a street, then you'd have, you know, lots behind that. And, you know, so the further you you know move back, the less the value was, it kind of stepped down and the less the rental income was. So to really maximize the income, you know, oceanfront was where it's at. So that's what I specialized at. That was where the biggest uh, monies were made per, you know, uh, property. And, you know, that's where the biggest houses were built and things like that. And it, it was all about the cash flow. I mean, these, you know, I was building these, you know, eight, 10, 12, and 16 bedroom houses that were generating anywhere from 180000 to $380,000 a year in, you know, rental income. So, I mean, these were just short-term rental properties on steroids. Yeah. And, and you're doing it before 
the craze of short-term rentals are what they are now. You said you're doing it in the, were you doing this in the nineties or did you start in two thousands with building these kind of bigger um, oceanfront stuff? Yeah. So my first big property started in probably 2000, 2001, I think was when I did my first big ones. Before that I was doing little ones. You know, I started out building little beach boxes, three bedroom, two bath. So I started in, you know, I got there in 97, started my first spec house. I think it was 99 somewhere around there when I got an actual general contractor's license and started, you know, built my first house. It was a little three bedroom, two bath beach box that I don't know, back then probably cost a hundred thousand dollars to build. Yeah. Uh, and then I started building the multi-million dollar homes where the kitchens alone were a hundred thousand dollars. You know, it was a really interesting evolution. Then fast forward to 08, 09, all of that got shut down. There was no business, no work, just like Charleston. I don't know if you were in the business then, but I had about $40 million worth of projects going, you know, commercial and residential. And, you know, everything just shut down. The bank shut down. You know, you couldn't get permanent financing on, you know, properties that I just finished with construction loans on the back end. So anyways, once all that wound up, you know, 2010, 11, I just went back to starting to build, you know, little beach houses again, you know, that were at that time, I think there were 125 to 150,000 is what they were costing, you know, after building, you know, million dollar beach houses. It was really interesting how that came full circle, but those were still good. You could still make a hundred thousand, you know, to 150,000 a house on those. Yeah, no, I I go back and look. So Folly Beach is the beach that my wife and I uh, live close to and kind of kind of hang out at. And I go back and even look what stuff was selling for 10 years ago, 2012, 2013, and what they're selling for now. And I'm like, man, it's hard to believe that just 10 years ago in the spot where these homes are multi-million dollar homes on the beach now, we're selling for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. Next next to nothing compared to what. and, And I look and I'm like, how did somebody not see the value of the beach then or, or whatever it was. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, so you, you could do them all and there's all shapes and sizes, but of course now all the new stuff's being built is 10 bedrooms, nine bedrooms, because the more people you can get in a house, the closer it is to the water, the more you can rent it for. Yeah, exactly. And it's all, you know, uh, economies of scale, you know, the little houses are doing well. I mean, I've got some clients I coach in the Airbnb space that are doing ground up short-term rentals. Yep. And I mean, he's doing stuff ground up cabins in the mountains at two fifty to three hundred thousand all in, and those are netting him after everything, after all expenses, operating costs, debt service, fifty to sixty thousand a year. So they're grossing almost a hundred thousand a year on these little things. That you know, that used to be a six or seven bedroom house on the ocean front, and probably about a five or a six bedroom. You know, now we'll do a hundred to hundred fifty thousand a year in gross rents, but those beach houses are much more expensive to operate, and you have a shorter season a lot of times. You know. Yeah. So uh, it's, yeah, that business has really evolved the whole Airbnb thing. And, you know, and it's not for every property everywhere. A lot of people are getting hurt in that right now because the pandemic opened up a lot of opportunity for Airbnb. I mean, you could almost Airbnb anything anywhere. Now, you know, the properties that aren't in, you know, the typical tourist destinations, you know, vacation destinations where you have those drivers uh, of vacation demand are kind of taking a hit. And if you're not in a real year round market, um, you know, your income's kind of limited. So when I'm talking about those numbers that we were doing, you know, 180, 200, 300,000 a year, that was only in 28 weeks. So down there, you had a 28 week season. So you're only written half the year. So these other Airbnb properties, like, you know, my clients have in the mountains, they're renting those probably 48 to 50 weeks out of the year, almost every week, week in and week out. They have very few weeks that they're not renting. Uh, so it, it's a very different animal, different market right now. And then, you know, the properties that I was doing, and even still today, What's really interesting is, you know, the traditional property management companies that I used to put my properties with that managed them, you know, they had these week to week check in, check outs. 
So you either you checked in on a Saturday, you checked out on a Sunday, you checked in on a Sunday, you checked out on a Saturday. It was kind of kind of week to week like that instead of doing the flexible check in. And a lot of them still haven't even evolved to that model now. So there's still a lot of old school thinking in that industry on the coast. You know, in a lot of these regions like in Outer Banks, you know, the Foley Beach, the way they used to do things. So, you know, that VRBO and Airbnb has really, you know, changed the game for vacation rentals. It has. And the other we had a we had a guest on a couple episodes ago that specialized in short-term rentals. And the other thing that we talked about for there is also what's hurting people is being a good operator of these homes. Yeah. Um, you know, cause that's one thing to, to where, where people are getting hurt is owning a nice house in a nice area, but then on top of it, being a good operator of that home. And I told him a story. We stayed in a 12 bedroom house in, uh, in Myrtle beach for uh, a little gathering that we had. They had no toilet paper, no soap, no dish soap. And basically their welcome email was, hey, go out and buy this stuff for your house. You're spending $2,500 a night, but you need to go out and buy all these things so that you can then take care of our house. And I was like, man, this is, I'd much rather just go stay at a hotel. Yeah, that's happening too. There's there's a little bit of that shift going on in the Airbnb market, but you know, that's going to create opportunities, right? For yep. wholesalers, house flippers, you know, there's there's going to be opportunity. I mean, it's a difficult time right now if you're in that business. The people that I coach in that space are having a hard time finding deals in a lot of markets. And, uh, you know, it, it seems like it's going to continue to get a little bit more difficult here in the near term, you know, unless and until rates go up and, you know, higher and stay up higher for a lot longer. I mean, they've got to be over 7%. But now you're getting the creative, you know, mortgages coming back into play, the buy downs and things like that that are keeping interest rates low. I mean, you can still get a three, three and a half percent interest rate with a buy down. Uh, so that's keeping pressure on the space. But, you know, that's why I have a lot of clients that I've been coaching over the years, flipping houses. I had one couple that they're in the business six years before they started with me. They never made more than a couple hundred thousand dollars. And, um, you know, I put them in some programs and systems like RE Simple, Simply, you know, I had them using that. And uh, yeah. they had no CRM that they were using or database or anything. And they went from a couple hundred thousand a year after six years of being in the business, flipping houses. One year with me, they made one point three million. Um, just wow. by helping them get the right systems in place, working on some negotiations, you know, techniques, showing them how to raise capital so they can do more deals, you know, that kind of stuff. But, you know, just really systemizing and, you know, making their business more efficient. But, you know, right now there's such a lack of inventory that I've got a lot of people that are shifting into development and starting to do spec houses and teardowns and, you know, things like that, that, you know, I used to do a lot of and uh, really taking advantage of that opportunity right now. Yeah, so let's let's talk about that because that's interesting. We haven't talked to anybody yet about doing any development, um, teardowns, land stuff. Um, what uh, what would you recommend to somebody that's wanting to get started? You know, where's a place to go to learn about that? Um, to learn a little bit about you know land and and new construction or teardowns and stuff like that. Yeah, so you know, I've got courses. I've got some really inexpensive courses on real estate development where you can learn that. I also have a YouTube channel. Uh, where I've got a lot of content on real estate development. Uh, so that that's really the best way to do it, um, to educate yourself. I don't know of any other resources out there that really talk about how to build spec houses and you know how to get into development. That's why I did it. It's because yeah. nobody else is really talking about it. Uh, and then really the best way to learn is, you know, once you educate yourself, uh, usually this is going to be somebody that's coming from the house flipping game. So they're going to know the market, you know, things like that. You got to really drill down on what's the sweet spot in the market. What's the price point that's going to sell. Then you have to reverse engineer that and you got to go meet some builders, talk to some builders, get the right builders uh, that understand spec house development, things like that. You know, other investor builders, 
uh, you know, to hire to do the projects for you. And, you know, if you're if you're a house flipper and you're self-performing and you've got project managers, you know, you can hire somebody that builds houses to come work for you. Some of the big builders are laying off and cutting back. So, you know, there's people out there looking for work that can come in and you know work for you and teach you how to build houses. And that's how I did it. So I've never built a house before I built a house. So what I did was I went and recruited uh, people that were working for other builders in the area, you know, superintendents. I brought them on board to work for me and uh, turned them loose and had them build the houses for me. And I learned from them. So that's really the way to do it. You hire a general contractor to do the work for you, or you hire a project manager if you're a general contractor and you're licensed to come on board for you that understands how to build ground up. Then it's just identifying the right land and the right area, you know, understanding your costs, you know, being able to get the financing, understanding how that works. And, uh, you know, it takes a little bit longer. You know, it takes you six to eight months to build a house in most areas. Uh, so, you know, it's a little bit longer of a cycle. So you got to have all the things that, you know, go in with that. Uh, but, you know, when there's no inventory, it can be a great business model. And, you know, I've got several clients that I'm helping them scale that that business as well. Is there any, uh, is there anything specific you look for in land? Um, you know, do you go talk to the county? Do you talk to the city? Are there certain types of land that you like to look at for for development? You know, let's say not talking, you know, beach tide stuff, but just infill lots or some development. Um, are there certain things that you're looking for when it comes to that? Yeah. So initially, the easiest way to get started, what I started with is scattered, you know, infill development, scattered lot infill development. So those are lots that are in between, you know, already built existing homes in mature subdivisions. Uh, they already have roads, utilities, you know, everything's in. It's just a vacant lot that never got built on. There's some videos on my YouTube channel that I just recently went through a couple of neighborhoods in Florida. And I talked about this business model of infill scattered lot development and uh, what to look for and how it works. So that's really what you look for is just, you know, vacant lots in in good areas where houses are selling. And for whatever reason, it just didn't get built on either. You know, somebody just bought a house to keep somebody from building next to them or bought a lot to keep somebody from building next to them or the developer didn't develop on it. Could be any any number of reasons. So, you know, that's the easiest thing to target right now in a lot of areas. And you'd be surprised how many, you know, uh, mature subdivisions have vacant lots that were not built on. Uh, and then you have the teardown where, you know, you can find either an old house might be sitting on two or three lots and you tear it down or a building that might be sitting on multiple lots and you tear it down. I do a lot of those. Uh, you know, that's another way to do it. Again, it's usually in a mature subdivision where it's either a house or something sitting on multiple lots. I had one that I did that was an old like uh, army trailer barracks, kind of, well, army trailer kind of thing. So when people were coming back from World War II, you know, the uh, the army was making these like prefab structures, like trailers almost, that they would put on a foundation and provide housing for people coming out of the army. And uh, this was one of those things that was sitting on three lots. So I went there, tore it down, and, you know, I had to put, you know, a little bit of utilities in to service it. But, you know, those are really good plays as well. Sometimes, you know, a house can be sitting on a property line. You can get a... a you know, boundary line adjustment to peel off a lot. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to do it, but that's the easiest thing to start with is just, you know, scattered infill lots. Gotcha. Yeah, because they'll they'll already have all the hard work, at least when it comes to developing land done. You know, if, if, exactly. if, it's, in and, a, if it's in a established yeah. neighborhood, you're just making sure the lot's cleared and then graded down and, and essentially can build um, on top of that. Well, then, then you have to be cleared and graded down. So that's the other key is you want to, I mean, it could be fully wooded, it could be, you know, it could have some undulating topography. You just need to understand what's required to clear it and to fill it and, you know, what your, you know, limitations are and requirements are in th those regards. You know, sometimes they're flat and ready to go. It's just grass and people have been mowing it. 
you know, sometimes, you know, it's got trees, sometimes it's, you just never know. So it doesn't have to be clear, you know, ready to go, but those are even easier, you know? Yeah. And then, um, and so then your goal from there is to try to build the house for less, I would say price per square foot for what they're selling for. Is that pretty much yeah. kind of the, the quick rule of thumb? Yeah. And typically, you know, your development cost is generally going to be lower than replacement or lower than, you know, what's uh, existing homes are selling for. Because when inventory is constrained like this, house prices go up. So generally it's cheaper to build than it is to buy. And that's when development, you know, becomes more attractive. Also, people like newer and will pay more for newer. So, you know, that's that's where you have that delta as well. But yeah, the key is you got to understand what are the prices, what's the market selling for, what are the prices, and you do your you know, reverse pricing, just like you do for a flip. What's it going to sell for? Subtract your, you know, sales costs, closing costs, holding costs, subtract your build costs, subtract your land cost, And then there's, you know, how much you want to make. Uh, Or you can do it the other way around. Say, look, I want to make a hundred grand. So you take that, add what it costs to build the house, the cost of the lot, you know, all that, and just, you know, do it the other way. So, you know, that's kind of how it works. Is financing any different when it comes to getting loans for uh, doing like a new construction lot? Uh, for the investment side? Yeah, it's it's quite a bit different. So you can use private money. You can use hard money. There's hard money lenders, private lenders that will lend on new construction. You can also use bank financing and bank financing is a little bit different. Some banks have a construction to perm depending on what your exit strategy is. And you can do multiple exit strategies. So you can build to rent. That's a really popular thing right now because there's no inventory. So there's entire subdivisions of thousands of homes going up right now that are purposely built to rent. Single family homes, they're called horizontal apartments. And, um, you know, so that's the thing right now. So if you want to have exit strategies, you can rent it long term, you can rent it midterm, you can rent it short term, you can sell it. Uh, you know, so there, there's a lot of different avenues you can go. So you just want to have that end goal in mind. But anyways, back to the bank financing. Uh, it's a little bit different with, a with you know, construction in terms of, you know, how the bank does it. Some banks will only do the construction loan and then you got to get a, you know, another lender to do uh, permanent financing on it for a mortgage if you're going to keep it. Um, you know, other banks will do, you know, construction revolving lines of credit. So you can do multiple properties, uh, you know, and then there's, you know, some mortgage companies that will do a construction or perm loan. Uh, so a little bit different, but the qualifications are the same as if you're going to buy a house to, you know, live in it or rent it, you know, they're going to look at your, you know, uh, tax returns, your credit score, your finances, things like that. Generally, do you have to own the land and then use the land as collateral to then go get the construction loan? Or can you get one loan that will do everything? Um, you know, obviously private, you know, you can work with a private investor and kind of get whatever you want. But when it comes to hard money or bank financing, do you have to already own the land or, or purchase it to then go get the construction loan? No. And generally, you never want to buy the land and take the land down until you get your building permit. You want to go through that and get your building permit first. Now, if it's in an area where you're almost guaranteed you can get a permit for what you want to build, Okay. Yeah, then, then, you know, you're okay, but you definitely need to go through the process and make sure and have your contract contingent upon being able to build what you want to build. So you can take it through the entire permit process before you close and, okay. and get that permit. Um, but yeah, the bank will provide, you know, a loan to take down the lot and provide the funds to build. And they will lend you typically depends like right now, banks are a little squirrely because of what's been going on with the banking situation and interest rates. But generally they're going to loan you anywhere, depending on what it is, 70 to 80%, sometimes 90, uh, of the appraised value or your cost, whichever is less. So yeah. that's what they're going to do. So if your appraised value comes in less than the cost, you got to make up the difference. 
um, you know, they're going to, again, they're only going to lend you a certain percentage of that appraised value or cost, whichever is less, but that's between the lot and the construction combined. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's a, that's a good tip. I would have never thought to, I mean, it makes sense to get your building permit approved before you buy the land. So you're not stuck with land that you can't build on. Exactly. Or not build what you want to build or, you know, all of a sudden, just like, you know, I've got a client in Florida doing a multifamily project and, you know, we were getting ready to submit for permits and we found out that the county had just uh, initiated a moratorium on any new development permits because they didn't have water and sewer capacity because they're growing so fast. Uh, this is in the villages in Florida. It's just blowing up, exploding. So a lot of these areas, your area especially, is experiencing a lot of growth. Yep. So cities and counties will stop, you know, issuing permits until they get caught up with, you know, water and sewer capacity. So, you know, or it could be utilities or it could be school capacities. I mean, any number of reasons. Uh, when I was building on the beach, I was building the giant beach houses. And I was the first one. I built three, four of the largest houses ever to be built in Nagshead. They're still there. Nobody else will ever be able to build bigger than what I built. And after I submitted, the, I did three 12 bedroom houses. They were right side by side. They were the biggest houses ever done. Uh, at the time, the town just, everybody just went nuts because everybody hated big houses. You know, it was like a thing back then. They still kind of fight it a little bit, but it is what it is. Then I did the 16 bedroom. It was a 10,000 square foot, 16 bedroom house. And then the day after I submitted that permit, they put a moratorium in place. You couldn't build bigger than 5,000 square feet or eight bedrooms. So, you know, from that day forward, that's the biggest houses you could build in the area. So I had four of the largest houses ever built down there. And you know, anything can happen. You know, you get, you get, you know, a certain city council and board and, you know, they can just change zoning, down zone you. They can stop you from building. I mean, there's all kinds of things they can do. Yep. They can change your ability of what your exit strategy is. We just had it in Folly Beach. They just passed a no more short-term rental uh, bill, I guess, maybe for the city uh, where it crushed people's property values because they can no longer sell them as short-term rentals. They, and nobody wants to live there full time. Um, and so we're curious to see how that kind of works out. Cause it's, yeah, it's, that's wild because isn't that what that place is? It lives off of, it lives off the, the tourist. And then uh, they, they have a certain number of permits they approved, which was more than the houses they currently have or less. So there's no new permits going to be submitted. And then if you sell your home, uh, you lose your permit. So the new owner does not get it. And so um, the property values uh, are getting are getting uh, crushed right now in the sense of there's no resale for the for the rental side. Yeah, yeah it's yeah, not interesting. It's, yeah, and it's not an area that you'd want to live full time. I live ten minutes from it. I but I would have zero desire to live down there full time um, with everything going on. So, but uh, that's really cool. So, so now you've gone from the infill lots, the or the smaller development, the beach house stuff, and now you do multifamily and neighborhood development is that what yeah, yeah so i moved into subdivision development mixed use subdivisions okay. residential subdivisions and then started doing commercial multifamily industrial things like that so you know my geography was limited yeah. so i had to broaden my asset type that i was that i was doing so as a developer you know you have a couple of choices if you want to be narrowly focused on the type of asset you're developing self storage you know that's all you do multifamily that's all you do gas stations that's all you do then you got to kind of broaden your geography a little bit because your your opportunity is going to be limited. Right. I didn't want to travel and do all that because I was home every night for my kids. And, you know, so while I was doing all of this, you know, building these companies, doing all the things I was doing during that period, you know, I had little kids and I was there for all their stuff. I coached all their sports. I was home for dinner every night, had weekends off. I took four or five weeks off every year. 
you know, I didn't miss a thing. Every event my kids had at their school, I was there. I was the volunteer dad doing everything. Awesome. And, um, you know, that was important to me. So I didn't travel. And uh, so what I had to do in order to stay busy, you know, and keep everybody busy was, you know, I had to do different types of things, or at least to grow my investment base, I had to do different types of, of projects. So, um, you know, that's why I was able to learn and do all the different things that I did uh, was because I wanted to stay in a you know tight little area uh, within my region. And uh, and then I had developers, like I said, that I was connecting with and doing deals with that were doing all different types. So I would do projects with them and for them and learn that way. So, you know, that's kind of how I ended up doing all the things that I did. And the same thing with starting, you know, the companies that I start. So I love to build companies too. Yes. So over the years, people would come to me that either wanted to start a business or they had a business and I would, you know, either buy their company or I'd partner with them and we would blow their company up and then sell it. You know, so I did that with a dozen different businesses. So, you know, I'm just your classic serial entrepreneur. I like to stay busy. I like to do a lot of things. You know, I like to stay intellectually stimulated. And that's why I do what I do now, you know, mentoring people all over the country. It keeps me really intellectually stimulated because I do fewer and bigger, you know, fewer deals now, bigger deals. I invest in markets and crypto. So, you know, a little bit different than what I was doing before. You know, I'm not operating on a daily basis. You know, after running a building company, doing any of that. So I'm a developer now. I lead, delegate, motivate. I outsource everything. I hire contractors to work for me now instead of doing it all in-house. So, you know, very different business model now, you know, 30 years down the road. Yeah, it's it's a different phase. And that's what we encourage everybody in real estate is to understand, like, there's phases of everybody's business. There's your, you know, you're doing your first lot deal, making $15,000 is a phase. There's a phase of grinding. There's a phase of scaling. Then there's a phase of, hey, I want to be rich dad. I want to be the person that is now using my money, everybody's coming to me, and then they're doing, you know, all the heavy lifting. And I'm here just to create this vision and and lead, um, you know, whatever it is. So yeah, yeah. And that's what I did all along. So I coached everybody in all my companies, I didn't run any one company on a daily basis. Yeah, you know, my building company was my main company I also had a real estate uh, brokerage with it as well. So we that's did real estate and construction. And, you know, yeah, I was a leader, delegator, motivator. I was the coach. You know, I, I put aces in places. I found great people. I coached them to success. I let them do their job. I let them build the company with us together and everybody benefited. You know, they all had really good salaries. They all got, you know, four or five weeks off a year paid. They got bonuses. You know, it's, it was a really good time. And, um, you know, and then there came a time where I was just done with that. And, you know, I wanted to move to a different level. So that's kind of what you do as you go along. You just evolve to these different levels and, you know, like now, you know, working on this tech company, I mean, that's going to be, you know, uh, probably a billion dollar valuation in a few years. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun working on those types of things and scaling that. That's exciting. So what, what kind of uh, investor, real estate investor, like what phase are they generally when they come to you uh, looking for mentorship, coaching, you know, kind of what, where are they at in their businesses? Yeah, it's different. Like I had the couple that, you know, had been flipping houses for six years and they were kind of stuck. And, yeah. you know, they never made more than a couple hundred thousand in that first year with me. I took, you know, they made 1.3 million. Um, I've got people, I had another guy that's been in real estate. He was one of the top 10 REMAX agents in the country in uh, in um, Iowa. And uh, he was also an investor, primarily residential. Had a couple of like four plexes, five plexes. He wanted to get into commercial. So on, now this guy's been in it for 10, 15 years at high levels. And uh, he found a four unit commercial property portfolio for sale for, I don't know, six or seven, $9 million, something like that. And he didn't know what to do with it. Didn't know how to take it down. Didn't know anything. He just knew that it had opportunity. So, um, you know, I showed him how to take that deal down without using any of his own money. 
and ending up with about a million in equity in the property uh, and uh, $100,000 in cash flow. So it was a four property portfolio deal, no money out of his pocket. It was like 9 million bucks and a uh, million bucks in equity and, and 100,000 in positive net cash flow. So he's been doing it a while. Then I've got people that are syndicating big multifamily deals and, um, you know, they're, uh, you know, starting at different stages. I have some that are just getting started. They've got some real estate experience. They kind of understand, but I work with a lot of, you know, medical and dental professionals that are getting into real estate and syndicating and gotcha. teaching how to do it. I had one group of doctors I took from a hundred million in assets to a billion. Uh, had another guy that had 500 million already had already been syndicating, um, you know, bigger multifamily deals for a while. He's very prolific in the space, Joe Fairless. And, um, yep. Yeah, he's well known in the space. So he was about 500 million when uh, he started with me and he's over a billion now and has sold some stuff, you know, aspects of the company and did some mergers and things. But, um, you know, just all over the map. And then I've got people that are builders and they're scaling their spec house development business. You know, maybe they're doing 10 or 20 houses a year and they want to get to 50 or 100. So I'm helping them scale that or maybe to get into more development. And, you know, I got people that are doing industrial only, just, you know, flex spaces like office warehouse. Uh, industrial parks, you know, storage, things like that. So, you know, it's all over the map. You know, I, I don't have anybody generally that, you know, has zero experience at all. You know, there are some, you know, professionals that come to me that, you know, have never done a deal, but they kind of, they know, you know, they've educated themselves to a degree, but most of the people are, you know, have some level of success in their business or their career, you know, that, uh, you know, before they come to me. Gotcha. And so what's one of the first things that you do for them when you bring somebody in? What's one of the first problems or things that you could change quickly that impacts their business that you try to look at? Yeah, you know, generally it's the first phone call, you know, where I can figure out exactly what it is that they need to do and need to be focusing on. But that's really it. Taking a look at their business, uh, you know, what they're doing, how they're doing it, why they're doing it, you know, not just their business, but the whole picture, uh, you know, from legal structure, tax structure, you know, their, you know, estate management, all that kind of stuff. And just really kind of helping them figure out what are the what are the one or two things you really need to be focusing on to move the needle. Because what I find most with people is that there you know there's so many things you can do, so many different types of things you can do. All these shiny objects out there, they don't know what to focus on. Yep. So you know that's a big one. Or they don't know how to raise the capital they need. That's a big one. Like a lot of people don't know how to raise capital to scale. So that's a big one that I help people with. And then a lot of them just don't know how to be a leader, delegator, you know, motivator. I've got a client in the United Arab Emirates, um, you know, that's a builder. He's got six different companies. We've got a building company. He's got, you know, marketing company. He's He's got, you know, education company. And, you know, I'm really teaching him how do you bring a team together? How do you get a COO, you know, CFO, you know, all your department heads and get them on the same page moving towards the goal and, you know, accomplish these things. So I've got people that just have, you know, different types of companies that I'm just helping them with their leadership management structure. So, Usually, you know, I can get on the phone with somebody and take a look at what they're doing and within a few minutes pinpoint exactly what they need to be doing, what they need to be focusing on, and what's going to really make the biggest difference for them based on their, you know, God-given gifts, you know, talents and resources that they have. Yeah. That's awesome. And and you nailed one of the biggest ones is focus. There's so many shiny objects, there's seminars, there's YouTube, and everybody wants to do everything. And it really helps in the beginning if you just focus on a certain, um, you know, for you, like in the beginning, it was like you're more concerned on geography than necessarily asset class. It was like, I'm going to focus on being in this area, be really good at this area. And then I'm going to just grow what I'm doing versus, hey, let me buy in North Carolina. Let me buy in Virginia. Let me buy in 
you know, California and Texas, the next thing you know, you're scattered and not doing any of it really well. Which is great if you're doing the right kind of asset. So if you're right. a syndicator, multifamily, and you want 250 units and up, you know, class A and B, you got to go out to these different markets because yeah. there's only so many in every market and there's competition. So you have to, you know, again, if you're going to be narrowly focused on the type of asset right. you're investing in or developing, you've got to broaden your geography. Um, you know, but I, I had businesses too. So I was focusing on just owning a bunch of businesses, owning a bunch of different kinds of real estate, doing all kinds of deals, just kind of staying in my little niche area, you know, and that was limiting to a degree because there's, you know, there's only so much of it you can do. But, it, you know, for me, what I knew at the time and going along, it was perfect. It worked. I learned a ton. And, uh, you know, now I've got people all over the country doing all kinds of different things. So it's kind of like I'm in all these different markets doing all these different things, you know, so it's it's a lot of fun. That's uh, no, that's really neat. It's really neat to, you know, kind of be a part of a bunch of different things because you can really have a, a pulse on what the market's like, what different asset classes are like, um, because you have people actively doing multiples of different things. Yeah, I've got people that are just flipping land and, you know, they've been very successful flipping land and, you know, they come to me to scale that, put systems in place, people, you know, and kind of scale, raise money to, you know, do bigger deals in the land development side. So I've got several people I'm coaching that are just flipping land. And, you know, that's where you can get, you can do, you know, three things, really. You can flip the land, just raw, do nothing to it. You know, maybe take a chunk, divide it up, sell smaller parcels, but nothing else. Then you can do what's called paper development, you know, get the entitlements, get it approved. And then it's just, you know, paper approved. You haven't done any actual digging in the dirt and putting anything in. And then you can flip that to a builder. So that's, you know, where you can make even more money than just flipping the raw land. And then you can go ahead and put in the horizontal, you know, improvements and, you know, then sell off lots or sell off parcels and things like that. So, uh, you know, there's a number of different things you can do you know, on, the, on the land development side as well and land flipping side. So is land something, if you could, if you could pick an asset class, is land something that you're really big on because you can do so many different things? You can infill a lot, you can build commercial, you can build storage units. Is that something you really kind of push people towards, um, you know, figuring out how to understand and learn land? Yeah, I mean, I don't push anybody to anything. Yeah. But, you know, everybody has their sweet spot, their understanding of what they're drawn to. So I don't I don't do that at all. I don't tell anybody what they should be doing. Generally, people are already doing something. And, you know, we kind of go from there. But for me, you know, land is, you know, whoever controls the dirt controls the deal, right? So land is where it's at. They ain't making any more land. So, you know, right. you know, from that Foley Beach area, from where I came from, pretty much everywhere. And right now, builders are hungry for land. So if you can feed the machine because they need inventory. Uh, you know, there's a lot of opportunity in land right now. It's easier to get land than it is to get, you know, existing buildings right now. Uh, so that that's a real opportunity. And then you have options. You can, you know, sell it. You can build on it yourself. You can keep it and land bank for a while. Like I've had a lot of people ask me about land banking, you know, and, you know, some of the wealthiest people I know, that was their strategy over the years was just buying land, you know, in the path of growth, um, you know, where that was going and just buying land up all around, you know, certain areas, um, you know, like some of the suburbs of Charleston, you know, if you could have bought all that land up, you know, 20, 30 years ago and, you know, done nothing but sit on it, you're, you're golden. You don't have to do anything. Um, you know, so land can be very good, even agricultural land. I mean, agricultural land, you know, has outperformed a lot of assets, you know, just owning it and leasing it out to farmers. Yeah. You can also, I think you can also do like campsites on agricultural land now, um, is something that people enjoy doing is, They'll take their farmland and take a piece of it and have it set to where people can come camp on it. And they like that there are cows and, and different animals. It's there's so much stuff you can do with it. Um, it's pretty amazing. 
And I have, I had some friends do really well with some of the land banking around Charleston. They owned it in some rural spots and they just got phone calls from developers and the state because they needed roads and different things. And, you know, it was almost kind of like pick, you know, set your price and here you go. Exactly. Yeah. I guarantee you, no matter where you are, everybody who's watching this right now in your city, in your county, there's somebody who's the majority landowner who's owned most of the land through the years. And it always does very well for them. And, uh, you know, prices are a little different now than they were, you know, back in the day, but you can still do it. You know, you can still, um, you know, find opportunities, a lot of different ways you can structure deals and do things and, uh, you know, things like that. It's a little harder unless you've got deep pockets to really, you know, bank a lot of land right now, but, you know, some areas it's still, uh, you know, prices still aren't too bad. Gotcha. Yeah, no, it's, 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 uh, it's definitely been interesting to see. I've, I've talked to my wife and I'm like, where can we, cause we, Charleston kind of has three areas that are all going. And so it's trying to figure out kind of on which sides, um, make the most sense and what's pushing, what's pushing, um, you know, where and when. So the key to that is the schools, wherever you see the best schools and the best rated schools, that's where you want to be. That's where the, that's where the growth that creates value and demand is going to be. Gotcha. That's a good tip. Yeah. Cause that's, cause we've looked at, like I said, there's three ways. And if you think of it, one of the ways the schools aren't very good. um, One of the ways the schools are significantly better. um, And then the third way is more job dependent because there's nowhere else because it's away from the coast. So obviously building has to go away from the coast because there's no more land to develop over here on the beach. So I didn't, I didn't think about looking at it from a school's um, perspective. Yep. That makes, that makes the most sense. Yeah. People will move for their kids to go, go to the schools they want them to go to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the final thing, um, what's, what's, uh, I just had a brain fart. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> So one of the things that we like to do on our podcast is um, kind of give four tips to the guests that are listening on uh, the four pillars of Resimply, which is your data, your marketing, your sales, and your systems. And I know you've talked a lot about um, systems and, and, and processes and scaling. And so we like to try to get from the guest, um, you know, one of each. And so the first thing we'll talk about is data. So from you, from a business owner, from marketing, from from uh, a land developer, what is the data that you like to look at it when it comes to um, finding a new area or finding sellers or any kind of data set that's really important for you right now? Yeah. So, you know, the areas you want to be in are the areas in demand. So, you know, that's going to be positive net migration, good schools, you know, good job opportunities, things like that in terms of areas that you want to invest, you know, as far as sellers go looking for motivated sellers, you know, all the data there that, you know, foreclosure, divorce, utility payments that are behind, tax liens, you know, those types of things in terms of, you know, putting your list together. The biggest thing about a list is, you know, number one, you want to compile it, you want to scrub it and keep it clean, you know, where, you know, anything that you've done deals where it falls off or whatever, you want to segment that list, keep it scrubbed, keep it clean. And when you're, you know, marketing to that list and you're not getting any responses, like you're doing direct mail and you get a bunch of return mail back, you know, then skip trace that stuff and call it, you know, so your list can be used multiple different ways and it can be valuable forever. So don't ever let go of that list, you know, hang on to it. Those are people that, you know, are buyers and sellers, you know, partners, whatever. I mean, there's all kinds of different things you can do with a list of of those, but most important thing is to maintain that list, keep it updated, keep it scrubbed, 
you know, understand where everybody is on that thing, segment it, you know, you can segment with multiple layers of, uh, you know, motivations and things like that. And you got to have different kinds of lists. You want to have lists, you know, if you're in the single family game, you know, obviously, you know, the different, you know, houses, try to drill down on who that seller is so that yeah. you can really go after. What's that, you know, if you've got something that's working, a typical, you know, type of seller or, or environment that they're selling, like for me, <clears throat> the best deals I ever did were, you know, always probate deals, whether it's land, whether it's commercial, multifamily, residential, always either people retiring or, you know, estate opportunities. Um, so, you know, that's a whole separate list. Then you've got, you know, all your other motivations. And, you know, the, the biggest thing is when you're dealing with lists and talking to people, the last thing you always want to ask somebody when you're talking to them, no matter what it is you're doing, is, you know, if it's a seller, you know, do you have any other property you'd like to sell? Or do you know anybody else who has any property they'd like to sell? Yeah. You know, or anything, any asset, you know, because they could have a business, they could have whatever. You know, and you'd be surprised what that digs up. Oh, you know what? My boss or my uncle or my cousin. So a lot of people forget to ask that last question. It's it's amazing how many connections people have and that they won't think about you until you say, you ask them. Um, one thing you did talk about, which I hadn't, nobody's ever mentioned before, is the positive net is it migration. Is it, yeah. What what is it that you like to see when it comes to an area when it comes to people coming in um, and moving in? Yeah, more people moving in than it's moving out. So that's positive net migration. So you could say net migration. Well, that could be out. <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. that could be netting more people out than in. So you want to make sure that you got more people moving in than moving out. And uh, you know, generally, if you follow that, they really don't need to do anything else. I mean, if there's people flooding into the, in an area, there's going to be a reason, and it's either going to be jobs schools or, you know, some other kind of opportunity, quality of life, crime, you know, as we saw in the pandemic, people getting out of the cities and going to these suburbs. So they have room plus, you know, prices are way cheaper. You can get more house for the money, those types of things. So, you know, that's the easiest thing to follow is, you know, if you see an influx of people, and this can be, you know, at the state, county, city, neighborhood, block, and sit and, you know, position on on the street on the block, you know, where you see people flocking that want to be somewhere. So, you know, that's how you know you've got demand in a hot market and that's where you want to be. Yeah, because we talk about, you know, finding spots that people are coming to. And then from there, that kind of lets you know where to go. And then you can start pulling your list that you talked about for the sellers for for different motivational reasons. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, depending on where you're at, you know, if you're if you're flipping land, you know, then, you, you know, it's just rural land. Then you take a 50 mile radius outside of an urban core and you target everything outside of that radius for rural land. A lot of people want to buy rural land for, like you said, to go camping on, hunting on, fishing on, or just to own property. And they don't want to pay a lot of money. They just want to own property. So they'll buy that. So you just, like I said, you take a 50 mile radius outside a city center and then target those properties. If you want to develop, that needs to be inside that 50 mile radius. And it might be tighter than that, but you get around that, that urban core, that city center, and then you're going to have the path of growth around it where the development and the growth is going. And that's going to be driven and led by you know, ease of access, roads, schools, you know, utilities, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, those are the types of things you want to look at when you're targeting. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's that's a really cool way of visual is like 50 miles outside the city, rural, you're going more space inside that potentially closer. You know, you're going to do a little bit different ki- types of investing inside of that. Um, so the next thing when it comes to marketing, what marketing strategies would you um, say that have worked really well for you or you kind of talk to your students about uh, for for obviously their different asset 
dependent, but what are some marketing strategies that you like to um, work with? Yeah, in the residential game, whether it's land or houses, it's always been a combination of direct mail and voice broadcast. So back in the day, you know, I was using voice broadcast before it was even a thing. We didn't have direct to text, but we had, you know, um, where I could leave a message on people's answering machine because there wasn't a lot of cell phones. Okay. So, you know, it was just leaving, you know, uh, voice broadcast on their message machines. Now it's very different because all the, you know, everybody gets so many messages and nobody answers, but it's still pretty effective. I mean, the last time I did some farming for vacant land in an area that I was looking for property, I did a voice broadcast and I got, I get tons of response, you know? And, and uh, so, I mean, that's been one of the most effective cold calling is very effective, but it's not super efficient. You got to either hire somebody or uh, you have to do it yourself, but all of the top agents in the country, that's what they do. You know, you got to talk to sellers. So it's a contact sport. You, somebody's got to talk to a seller, but different markets, different assets, different things work, but for houses and land, Direct mail has always been, you know, a top one, um, you know, uh, cold calling voice broadcast has always been good. Some people are having success with texting in some markets In some markets, newspapers still work. If you've got an older demographic that's still like reading physical newspapers, that can work. Uh, TV works really well in certain markets, you know, and radio doesn't work well in others. And then if you really want to own your market, you just do it all, you know, and yeah. you do every property in your market and you do everything all the time. Then you become a known quantity. And then, of course, there's pay-per-click, Facebook ads, YouTube ads that you can use as well. Like almost nobody uses YouTube ads for motivated sellers. I mean, everybody's on YouTube. You know, why aren't you there? You know, so that's that's an easy one uh, that generates a lot of a lot of success. And a lot of people just don't even mess with, you know, it's like TV, you know, and, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, Google pay-per-click is always good. Some markets are better than others. Some times are better than others and it's not cheap. But that's that's really effective. I know people that do nothing but that, and they've done really well with it. Uh, and then, you know, Facebook ads are good. People are still on Facebook and Instagram. They haven't gone anywhere. No, no they're they're still doing very well. So, um, and and I think one of the biggest things, and, and you said, you know, it's a contact sport. You have to talk to sellers. So to do that, you you have to be consistent. You know, it, it's it's whatever it is you're going to choose. If you can't afford to do them all, you know, do them and do them and talk to people. That, that's what people people think. Hey, I'm just going to send some mail or do some calls, talk to three or four people, and I, that should work. And that's not how. Unfortunately, that's not how it works. You got to talk to people. Yeah, and follow up. You know, um, follow up is 100 percent of the game. I mean, I've gotten deals years after I've talked to somebody. You know, land deals and things yep. years down the road. I think the oldest one I ever had was probably five years after I first talked to them, and they they came out. You no, know, they came back to me. They said, "Oh, yep, I saved this postcard you sent me." You know, five years ago, I put it in my drawer. I'm ready to sell now. And I mean, it's just amazing, you know, what what uh, people will do. So always keep the same number. Don't don't disconnect your numbers that you've used for marketing. Don't disconnect web addresses and all those types of things. People will come back to those and they'll they'll find it. So, you know, if you're in the game for the long haul, you want to hang on to that. And if you're going to get out of the game, sell those to another investor. That's an asset. If you've got a phone number you've been marketing and advertising that has traction, and, you know, an email address or a website address, that's an asset that's valuable to somebody else. Somebody will pay you money for that. If you can show them that you've got traffic. Yeah. So then when it comes to sales, what would be your top advice um, for, for sales? So sales is serving. So my top advice for sales in terms of closing deals, if we're going to talk about sales in terms of closing deals, whether it's yep. a buyer or a seller, you're serving. You got you to listen. Listen to what people's needs are. Listen to what their motivations are ask good questions and ask deeper questions and be a good listener. Cause that's what sales is. It's all about listening. It's all about serving. It's all about solving problems. The bigger the problems you solve, 
the better opportunities you're going to have. And, you know, it's not it's not about pushing and you know pressuring and things like that. It's more about listening and letting people tell you and uncovering what the real motivation is. Sometimes, you know, one of the deals I had one time that I bought was a house uh, and it had two lots with it. It came on the MLS. I get tons of deals on the MLS. And this came on the MLS. It had a big price point. Nobody really looked at the opportunity. So I looked at it and I said, okay, there's a house that's got two extra lots that I can build on right next door. So, you know, they wanted too much money. I went in and made them offer. Let's say they were asking 350. I said, look, I can do 250. And they came back and they said, well, we can do 250 if you will go ahead and, you know, buy our house. We need $50,000 to put down on a new house that we're building. Um, if you let us, you know, if you'll give us $50,000, let us stay in the house till the new house is ready. We'll go ahead and take your 250,000. And I was like, okay. So um, what I did was I gave them 50,000. They put it down on their new house. They were able to stay in this house rent-free for six months while their new house was getting built. And I was able to start building on the other two lots without paying for the property. All I paid was 50,000. Yep. They weren't going to get the rest of their money until they moved out. So uh, that was the catch. They, you know, the other 200,000 came after they moved out. So I was able to build two other houses on two lots that I didn't pay for. They stayed in this house. When they left that house, I put you know another twenty or thirty thousand in it. Sold the whole thing that you know uh, ended up zeroing out the basis in the whole deal. So I don't know. I sold that for three hundred fifty thousand. So it covered the house. It covered the renovations and covered the cost of the two lots next door. So I had two lots free and clear. I built two houses on that. Sold it. Made like three hundred some thousand dollars on that one deal. And I only ever had out at any given time, no more than a hundred thousand dollars out, you know, in the process at any given time. That's it, You solved, you solved a $50,000 problem for them. And right. you know, people look at it as 350 is what they're asking. When at the end of the day, they just, they really just needed 50 grand and you solved a $50,000 problem for them. Exactly. So you just never know. Yeah. And then the last thing you've talked about it a bunch through here is with systems you know, what, what's a key piece for building systems inside somebody's business um, that you like to, to teach or lean on or, or really encourage them? Yeah. So anything that can be automated and outsourced, that's what we systemize. You know, and a system can be anything. It's, you know, it can be a procedure. It can be a software. It can be, you know, um, a job description. There's a lot of things. So that's the first thing that I do is I have people take a look at, you know, what does your organization look like? What is everybody doing? And, you know, where people get overwhelmed is, oh, I got to create all these systems. What I teach people how to do is take your people, let them create the systems. So anybody who's in your organization, have them document the process and everything that they do on a daily basis so that anybody could sit in their seat, open up this thing and just follow it and just do whatever it is they do every single day. So, you know, again, it can be a standard operating procedure, written document, and then it can be a software that you're using, you know, that is part of the system and how you use that software is part of the system. So you want to systemize every aspect of your business. And then as the business owner, you want to look at what's the one thing that I need to be doing every single day that moves the needle forward. Everything else needs to be outsourced, systemized and automated. And, you know, that's that's really what I do is I sit down and look at what's your superpower, what's going to move the needle for you and your business, what's everybody else doing. And, you know, then I look at the same thing with them. So you've heard the whole 80-20 rule, you know, 80% of your results come from 20% of your actions. What I do is I take that 20% and then I break down that into the 100%. What's the one thing that generates 100% of your results? And that's what you need to be focusing on. And that's what we do for everybody in the organization. And then they all do the same thing. So that everything at the end of the day 
is automated and systemized so that people are spending time on what matters the most in their role. Yep. Cause it's amazing. People love to just do busy work. They, instead of, instead of setting things in place to let them work and flow and build. So, um, cause that, yeah, I'm, a, I'm an efficiency junkie. So, you know, I have, I have a couple of, you know, unique skill sets, but get things that, that, you know, that I've been given by God that he put me on this planet to do. One is efficient, being able to figure out, you know, simplify the complicated, figure out what everybody's sweet spot is, find champions and coach them to success by putting the right people in the right place and understanding what people's gifts are and putting them in that role versus trying to get somebody to do everything. You know, most people have a bent that they're really good at, you know, one or two things. And, you know, if you put the right people in the right systems in place to do the right things, everything else takes care of itself. 100% agree with that. 100%. So, well, Greg, um, I appreciate your time today. Um, what uh, What's the best way for um, our listeners to find you? Yeah, gregdickerson.com. Yep, all my info is there, YouTube channel, tons of videos. I don't know, over a thousand videos, uh, gregdickerson.com. Wow. Okay, awesome. Well, I appreciate it, Greg. I appreciate your time. And uh, um, again, uh, have a great day. Thank you, sir. You as well. Thanks for having me.